Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here? You're man. The Arsenal supporters on the World Service were none too happy with their coverage of their collapsed title challenge on Thursday's football pod after the game against Manchester City. And there have been some emails both before and after the <laughs> rejuvenation Shove of that it up yours, <laughs> best club in the world. Pretty much a lot. No man, anybody else. Hey, that Mer- sort of thing. Hey, old, how's hey it again. Going? Owen, how are you doing? Matthew Ovington said, I didn't get a chance to listen to the podcast until Friday and a drive down to Glendalough with the family. As an Arsenal fan, I wasn't looking forward to it, but my son, who is 12 and a keen listener, despite or perhaps because of all the cursing, wanted to hear it. I've never been stung enough to write in before, but Thursday's denouncement of Arsenal's character demands it. As we listened, I grew increasingly irritated as Ken and the other pundits bowed to football orthodoxy that only big teams with the biggest squads, deepest pockets and best players can win the league and that the desire and determination of a young team like Arsenal count for very little. I put on a brave face to reassure my son telling him not to listen to these commentators. I confidently predicted Arsenal would beat Villa and City would struggle against Forest, and we'd be back on top by tea time Saturday. Wow. We saw a gutsy win from Arsenal and a far too casual City restore my faith and my son's faith in this young Arsenal side. I even reappraised the signing of Chelsea Castle Jorginho for the part he played in the win. So does that one. That guy sounds like Viggo Mortensen from The Road. Scoreboard Just journalism. Protect, protecting his son at all costs. the boy. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's going to be all right, boy. I love the fact he doesn't mind Stick his, with me, son. He Everything's going to be all right. He doesn't mind us cursing to the high heavens, but like, do not say anything bad about Arsenal. That is what the son, uh, covered his son's ears for that That's one. That's a bloody top class. So this person was rattled by the defeat, but very disappointed in the in the defeatist tone on second captains. And the scoreboard... <laughs> defeatist? It's not the, you know, gunner, uh, second gunners. Gunner, yeah. gunner, we, we heart gunner, gunner Soros podcast. <laughs> That's not what we're doing here. Scoreboard journalising is what he called the following game where the XG worked out at 1.75 to 1.77 in City's favour. Goes on to say that unquestionably it's a slump, but having watched City this season, I'm perplexed at the apparent assumption around this City team putting in a run of 10 plus consecutive wins together and cruising to the title, as John Bruin puts it. And uh, this is before the Villa game. I now look forward to Unai Emery ruining yet another weekend for me, but that did not happen. Unai Emery 
the only Uni Emery extremely pissed off with his goalkeeper for charging forward for the uh, attempted equaliser which resulted in another goal for Arsenal in the 4-2 win oh, but he didn't manage to so do any damage man. let's report on sport after I tell people after I tell people to sign up after I urge our yeah. Monday only listeners Ask would be to fine think even, about but, signing up yeah. for our Champions League coverage huge week in the Champions League so you can join on secondcaptains.com for a fiver a month plus value well, we should have known, really. But I mean, that's that's. I suppose a lot of the time, that's what we're we're doing. We're purveying knee-jerk takes. What, <laughs> what a lot of people on the internet would uh, would describe as reactionary takes. Yeah. Incorrectly, of course, they would use they're using the word incorrectly. That's not what reactionary means. Well, you're reacting um, to something. No, no it's that's reactive. Not what, Ken, you've already yeah. bored us to tears of the difference. Oh, we have done that. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah but it, it seems as though my <laughs> message hasn't got through because uh, every every day I see the misuse of this term increasing, and it's something which annoys me. It continues to annoy me more and more. Um, Just a brief reprise, a reminder of that. I'm probably misusing the term reprise there. So, a quick <laughs> reminder of that for non-members. What? Why? Reprise. Why is reactionary um, being used incorrectly? Forget about my reprise reprise thing there. Reactionary does not mean, uh, you know, reacting to something like a, a, a knee-jerk. Yeah, uh, like reaction. overly, yeah, overly analyzing. Oh, I'm, you're you're saying that because they lost. Oh, with the, with the team lost, therefore, uh, who is the scapegoat who must be made to walk the plank as a result of today's defeat? Um, there's a weak link here. There's a mole. There's a witch. There's some kind of a, something that shouldn't be here. Someone's face doesn't fit. Um. That's not reactionary. Well, like, no, it kind of is, actually. You're getting what you deserve here, by the way. Can I I'll just confused. say that? See, sometimes I can't you remember, sometimes I can't remember whether Ken has explained something on the World Service or on the Monday podcast, and then you're on the Monday, and you're like, are people, people might be wondering what we're going on about with this reactionary thing. Mm. So that's why I wanted yeah. Ken to clear it up. He's utterly failed to do so. So now we just move on with well, look, reaction, yeah, Ken, yeah, to yeah, ourselves. Yeah, yeah, to be reactionary doesn't mean that you go around reacting to things unless that thing is pro progress uh it's basically the opposite of being progressive i suppose or the idea that we should tear you know rather than we you know we need to change all this this isn't working we need to change it's like instead it's like you know when things used to work in the old days that's what we need to go back to uh so that's that, 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 I guess that in a simple terms, that's a reactionary attitude. It's got nothing to do with reacting to like the latest defeat or like, you know, um, saying Mudrick is a failure because he hasn't scored in his first three games or what, you know. So again, where were we? Arsenal. Oh, yes. Arsenal. Arsenal coming back and, uh, well, we've got a title race. We got we were wrong. We were wrong to, to give that reactive uh, take. <laughs> Uh, saying that, you know, well, you know, Arsenal kind of pissed away a big lead very quickly there, and it's going to be making them feel real bad. And, you know, City looks so strong. City looks so good, so tall uh, compared to Arsenal. And that, you know, thinking the same thing that's happened before is going to happen again, which is to say City going on a big run. And as the emailer pointed out, that's not really what City have been like this year. They've been... You know, they've been sort of shooting themselves in the foot at various points. They've been losing points they should have lost. I mean, this game against Nottingham Forest is just one of those. I mean, the whole week actually was a, was a, uh, uh, the whole weekend rather, there was just so many examples of the fundamental, unpredictable chaos of football, which were, which were amazing. Yeah, Saturday in was, particular. You don't know, oh. uh, the way football has gone in, in the sky world, oftentimes the best games are left until the Sunday, but there was so much happened over, over Saturday this time. Well, the Villa Villa Arsenal game is just an amazing game. 
Um, obviously, Villa started really well. Um, 1-0, then Saka equalised. Uh, I mean, it was a great goal by Watkins. Maybe not so good by Saliba. Um, Saka then scored a great goal. You think, oh, Arsenal right back in this. And then Villa got 2-1 with the Coutinho goal. And the question then becomes, oof, you know, that's, that's two setbacks in a row. I mean, on top of like weeks of setbacks for Arsenal, what are they going to do now? And okay, obviously Zinchenko gets them back in the game. But the, the massive moment in the game was this incredible miss by Martin Odegaard. It was, it was it was just one of those incredibly dramatic moments where you thought, looking at it, you thought, well, that's it. Like, that's that's this is the title. You know what I mean? He's just kicked the title wide. This is a chance. Like, the ball comes across to Odegaard. Uh, Martinez is kind of scrambling across his goal. The defender isn't close enough to really put any pressure on him. It's on his left foot. It's it's better than a penalty. And he side puts it wide of the post. At that point, you think, well, that's it. And then Martinez. <laughs> now, I, I mean, I like Martinez. I've got friends who hate Emiliano Martinez and consider him to represent everything that's wrong about the game and everything that's bad about the way the game is going. You know, this like um, trolling and mockery and all of this kind Ken, of stuff. Whereas I, are, I, you, are, you, are you mates with Unai Emery? Because I, I feel he feels that. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, yeah. when he talks about Martinez, it was put to him a bit of celebrations in the World Cup and, and he was like, no, that's, that's, that's not on. We'll have a word with him when he gets back. And then this happens. So he didn't criticise him for the ball bouncing in off his head. That was just unlucky. He mm. did criticise him for going forward then for a corner kick when he said, I do not want my goalkeepers doing that. But he said, there's a one in 20, there's about a one in 100 chance of him scoring and about a one in 20 chance of him conceding. I don't know if those are actual stats that he looked up, but um, yeah, yeah he, he conceded. So how do you view, how do you view Martinez? Well, I mean, match? I like Martinez. I mean, to me, the, the, the we penalty... We characters in the game, Ken. Yeah, I mean, it, do you need characters like this in the game? I mean, there was there was obviously, uh, I guess Martinez will be remembered. I mean, he, his headstone may be in the shape of his pose on the pet on the yes. catwalk uh, in Qatar as he receives his goalie uh, his goalie trophy, his Golden Gloves trophy for the World Cup, and proceeds to um, turn it into a golden penis. Well, there's that deathless um, image of of Martinez. Uh, thrusting his hips forward with the Golden Gloves trophy. And then in the background, Sheikh Jassim of uh, the Qatari royal family looking on with a, um, a, an expression that's difficult to judge. I thought that was that was actually the Sheikh Jassim who was leading the bid to buy Manchester United, but it turns out it's a different Sheikh Jassim. Um, the, uh, so, uh, so that's not going to be the owner of, of Man United, the guy who was there in the background of the Man right. Anyway, look, that was great. His other career highlight for me was the penalty incident with uh, Bruno Fernandes and Ronaldo. Oh, I mean, yeah. To me, that was uh, I. I enjoyed it very much. I thought it was, and, and other people who didn't enjoy it who thought this is this is terrible. This is unprofessional. You shouldn't be doing that. But to me, to intervene in a situation like that, pointing at Ronaldo, saying, "What are you doing? Taking it?" He should be taking pointing, <laughs> saying, "Ronaldo should be taking it," and causing Bruno Fernandes to get so angry that he booted the penalty so far over the bar. This was good, but at the same time, in football, you know, if you live by the sword. You know, this is like, um, this is why most people don't do what, what Emilio Mar- Martinez did, because sometimes you're just going to end up looking very stupid. And also the people who made you look stupid are going to take great satisfaction in in doing so. Yeah. It's going to massively increase their joy in, in having been you. I mean, Bruno Fernandes, didn't he? He, he did come back and score a penalty against um, Martinez in the next game, I think. 
And in this one, Arsenal, having been frustrated by Martinez's time-wasting, you know, the time-wasting was just so, it was pantomime time-wasting. He did get a booking eventually. It's always the same. You know, they always booked him right at the end when it seems to be too late. Um, for him to then head the winning goal and then to concede a second goal <laughs> in the 97th minute because he's run up to the other penalty area, allowing Arsenal players to celebrate in midfield um, before the before the ball's anywhere uh, close to the net was, I think it was a great moment. And then for that, that to be compounded by Manchester City not winning at Nottingham Forest in a game when Erling Haaland, I mean, the chance, the, the double, double miss that miss, he had yeah. is just... I mean, how, you know, how many times would you have to replay that? Like a hundred times for him to do it again, <laughs> you know, to, to miss both chances. Like, I mean, he's a hell of a finisher. I think of... that might be overstating it slightly, but um, that if he, if you gave him the chance a hundred times, he would only miss. I mean, this it's a double chance. Yeah, I honestly think he he might miss that one in a hundred times, both times. <laughs> you know, I mean, how could the second miss? Like, how, yeah, yeah, it is. It is Amazing. a pretty terrible miss, to be fair. Um. So yeah, it's all it's all back on. It's 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 back on. Forget everything we said last week. We hold but... our hands up. We was yeah. wrong. Um, and, uh, and sorry, you know, I, 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 is, this a, is this a binary yeah, title yeah. race or hold on a minute here, Ken? Well, United, okay, United don't have to play either of these teams, do they? No, United only have games against um, against low ranked teams. Now, if you look at Arsenal over the next while, their fixtures are are you know they've got a winnable run that's what I'd say it looks like the next six games are Leicester Everton Bournemouth Fulham Palace and Leeds if you're dropping points in any of those games it's a really bad result well Fulham no disrespect to Fulham one of the surprise packets of the yeah Yeah, I'll give you Fulham I'll give you Fulham yeah I'll give you Fulham Fulham are a real curiosity you know they've um, they're outperforming their goals conceded XG expected goals conceded I should say Mm -hmm. By a third, I mean it's crazy what they're doing. It's uh, there's no mathematical explanation for what Fulham are doing, uh, but the mathematical prediction would be uh, a return to the mean. Well, they're within they're they're within three points of Newcastle in fifth, by the way. Yeah, Um, well, we'll get to them. uh, Don't worry, we'll get get to them because there was there was a fair bit of chaos going on there as well uh, in terms of um, uh, football, bloody hell uh, type of (laughs) type events on the pitch. Um, but we should talk. Uh, we're going to talk about Manchester United, obviously, in a bit more detail with uh, Richard Jolly and Jack Pitbrook. Richard was at Old Trafford to see this 3 0 win against uh, Leicester, which sounds like a pretty good result. And in fact, was a, was a good result. Uh, described as rubbish by Eric Ten Hag. <laughs> I just love this guy. I love how uncompromising he is. What I, what I like about him is that he's not fooled by this, the scoreline. Now, I don't mean to say that in, his, his like we were last rubbish. week at, at the Arsenal game. Well, I, I'm not saying that I don't think we were fooled by the scorelight so much as the events. And, you know, we just, oh, this is the way things are going to be now. You know, Arsenal will never win again. Manchester City will just keep getting three points every week. And, and in the end, City, you know, that's, that was our mistake. It's not, it's not a question of misjudging the game itself. Um, I, I, I feel like, you know, when Saul shows the manager, you win 3 0 at home. He's like, this is great. Everyone was great. It was wonderful. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that would be his attitude. Ten Hag is like, that was terrible. In the first half, uh, when we don't follow our rules of play, it's a mess. It's a complete mess. <laughs> this is what he was saying. This is a manager who's just won three nil, and everyone is is like uh, delighted. Everyone, everyone has gone home delighted. Rashford is having one of these all time runs of form, um, which I mean, sixteen goals in seventeen games, which is real phenomenal performance here. And this is the kind of performance that you really only ever see from a player who's about to run out of. 
contract and is going to get a massive new contract really soon. We saw it last season with Mo Salah in the first half of the season. Um, most famously, I, I think we saw it with Mark Viduka uh, on several occasions in his career. I don't, you know, some of you maybe don't even remember Mark Viduka, but Mark Viduka in uh, the times when he was negotiating for a new contract was the best player in the world. Yes. In the late 90s, early 2000s. I, I agree with that entirely. I mean, when I hear someone talk about it, I think this is the Viduka rule. Yeah. I, like, he, his name is so synonymous with it that I would, we should name it after this is always This is also an issue, uh, one of the many issues Chelsea face, and we'll talk about them later mm. on as well, given that they mm. will have nobody in that bracket yeah, for You're not getting the Viduka bounce till the next day. Well, they have Mason Mount. They have Mounty. Well, a few mm. current ones, but in about three years' time, they'll have everyone tied down to 10-year contracts. Mason Mount is um, Mason Mount is running out of contract, but maybe running out of road as well. Look, we'll get to him in a sec. But just the, obviously the big the thing that's happening at United is the takeover stuff. So on Friday was the deadline for bids, and there's a bid from Qatar, fronted by uh, Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad Al Thani, uh, another by uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who is the British uh, tax exile owner of Ineos, the giant uh, chemicals company. And so uh, there's a lot of, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, who's going to, who's going to get this, what, you know, how determined are the Glazers to sell? Um, how determined are they? I mean, we know that they, they want to sell, but they want to sell. What we don't know is how flexible they are on the price. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, what, you know, what's the minimum that they're prepared to um, accept what is the appetite of either of these sides for an auction? You know, the, none of these things really are known. Uh, what is happening at the moment is a lot of debate. Uh, you know, see, we follow these debates uh, mainly on the internet. And, you know, watching Man United fans and people who claim to be Man United fans argue on Twitter about um, the, you know, greenwashing and tax avoidance and... Uh, the historic crimes of the British Empire. Uh, I have been impressed at how the whole world has now turned into a giant Russia Today panel discussion, and and everyone is a guest. We're all guests. We're all, we're all just on this giant, uh, really awful TV show, just spouting off nonsense about stuff that we don't really. Oh, it's 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 really amazing. Um, it's really amazing and depressing. I mean, if I was a Manchester United fan. I think I would not want uh, Manchester United ultimately to be owned by by Qatar. Mm. Um, you know, is this because uh, I'm I'm biased against Qatar, racist against uh, Gulf investors? No, I mean the answer is that I just don't think it would be a good thing for Manchester United to become sort of the the toy of the Qatari state. Like I, I think Manchester United is a bigger. They don't they don't need it, and it would for me it would. You know, say say, say you, you are owned by Qatar. You, you know, you get all the Qatar money, and you end up winning trophies. Mm. Congratulations, Qatar! You know, that's the way that I I feel about it. I kind of feel like it would sort of leech away some of the sense of achievement of actually winning these trophies. It would put them well, into the... Well, of course it would. You know, I mean, it's just... You know, that's, that's what I feel. I mean, I, I'm sure there'd be lots of people who'd say, well, what are you talking about? We, we'll win the trophies first and then we'll, you know, talk about how we feel about it then. You know what I mean? But you, you agree with that? Of course. Like, well, even just the ideas that you, that you would decide as, like, as a fan, as a fan base that, oh, okay, now I have to become a, like a, 
um, an expert in Middle East politics, just so I can defend my team on Twitter. Oh, I mean, like, well, just that just alone, like take all the of the morals, er, all of the ethical questions out of it completely. Just the idea that you'd have to sit there day after day and be like, "Well, actually, it's not owned by the state; it's actually owned by yeah, like an investment QIA fund." Or QSI like, or, yeah, can you yeah, believe? Like, could you imagine a more grim way to? Uh, express your your support of a of a of a sports team than know. deciding. Okay, now I have to I have to do a, a four year undergrad in me- Middle Eastern history. Well, you are you're, you are a Manchester United supporter. Well, so these are, these are well, these are the these are the moral quandaries you're going to be faced with in the next. While. I d- I don't think Manchester United are going to be bought by Qatar, and if they are, then you don't, I think don't think they are. No, they're one of two bids. Yeah, I I don't think it's going to happen. Based Why? on what? We've been impressed. Yeah. We've been impressed by Qatar's bid, but we're going to sell it to Jim Radcliffe for less money because we yeah. think he'd be a good custodian for the club. You think that's you think Glazers would do that? Yeah, I, 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 I think we there's going to be enough United of fans it. who've been calling for us to be yeah. chopped up uh, for the last ten years uh, so much that we're going to, you know, I mean, I, there, there was a poll. Uh, the Athletic did a poll where they, you know, uh, I was it seventeen thousand. I'm, I'm reluctant to say how many. People, I think I read it with 17,000 respondents and there was like a two-thirds majority in favour of Jim Ratcliffe uh, and I read the piece by Laurie Whitwell their, one of their Manchester correspondents where he said, you know, the reaction when I posted this was just furious and people are saying stuff like, you can't spell liar without Laurie, you know, without four yeah, letters yeah, yeah. Laurie, you know, and this kind of stuff um, as, though the, as though Twitter was kind of a more Qatar-friendly zone than the results of this yes. uh, than this poll yeah, I, I just I, th- I think there will be enough of a groundswell of opposition to it, and I also think that the British government, at some stage, are going to get involved and say, "What? Why is the British government?" Yeah, I just I I just think there's going to be enough there's going to be enough une- uh, unease about this to ensure it doesn't. I mean, I I don't know. I I haven't we're, we're, I haven't clue. Honestly, the idea of of uh, of me constructing an argument as to why this won't happen it would see me venturing into like Twitter areas that I just yeah. would rather not. But yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like the idea that Manchester United would be like reduced to uh, selling to Qatar. And I mean, I know it's not Manchester United. I know it's the Glazers, so yeah. fine. But I, yeah, I just, I, I don't think it's... We, we are going to talk about that because there are signs that there, there there will be some opposition, for sure. I mean, there's, there's already been a couple of different supporters groups voicing concerns. Now, we'll delve a little bit deeper into that with the two guys later on. But I, I, So there's a sense that there is going to be an... I, I don't know, again, this is, we're speculating at the moment because it's very early days of it, more opposition than we saw at Newcastle, for example. But I don't know, you're going to need a serious groundswell to convince mm, the government to get involved in, in this and put the kibosh on it or whatever. And at, at the moment, the signs don't seem to be leading that way. Yeah, no, I don't. Um, Listen, at least see this time around, we have we have uh, Big Jim Radcliffe. I'm going to say Big Jim Radcliffe has some numbers of some, you know, some uh, influential people in British politics, and maybe there's maybe there's uh, a Tory donor is going to save the day like he like they always do. Ken, that's do that's, what I'm, Jim, that's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> Tory donor, do you think Big Jim Radcliffe? Um, is uh, knows as many people in British politics as the Emir of Qatar. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I don't know. I, you know, Ken, the, the I one don't thing know. that I would, st- I do see the thing uh, written sometimes. Oh, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, a Gulf investment bad, but Americans didn't have a problem with Americans. Have oh, they not seen what the Americans have done? Look at U.S. foreign policy. You know, they've poisoned the planet with depleted uranium. You know, they've they've um, massacred people uh, in Iraq. You know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, one point I, I do feel it's generally missing from that 
debate when it arises is that the American investors, although they may be representatives of the, you know, American billionaire class or corporate class in whose name, I suppose, this U.S. foreign policy is ultimately being um, being waged or carried out. They aren't actually instruments of that foreign policy. I mean, there is a separation there, whereas I think the Gulf investment in football is foreign policy. Yeah. You know I mean, I mean, it, the it idea that an investor, is, like Big it's, Jim it's, Radcliffe it's, might be, you know, he might be a top red, you know, dating back to 1953 or whatever. At the same time, he's still going to be operating it like it's a business. You know, at some yeah. stage, he's going to be like, okay, lads, can we like start winning a few trophies and can we, can I start seeing some money going the other way rather than me just like splurging on Kylian Mbappe? You know, yeah. like at some stage, it's going to be... Mbappe at the same time, geez, he's very good. He is very good. Like he's, he's genuinely good, really, geez, really he's good. He's very good. Yeah. I don't know if you saw, and I, I'm like, I don't know if you could ask for a better a better uh, show than PSG put on the other day, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was, was, it not, was it not Messi who scored that? I thought Messi scored the winning free kick. I saw that one. Uh, uh, PSG or uh, Mbappe um, scored. Mbappe scored the equalizer in the 87. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So Mbappe scored 11. Neymar 17. I'm not sure at what point Neymar was stretchered off, but it was an awful situation. He's so unlucky. It was. He's playing well. Um, uh, he, he kind of goes past the guy in midfield and he's and he's sort of leaping in a quite balletic way to get the ball. And just as he's doing that, the guy sort of tackles him from behind. Not very hard, but sort of knocks the inside of his shin in such a way that his foot, which is coming down to land, comes and twists over horribly on his ankle. He's stretchered off. I'm not sure yet how long he's going to be out for, but it looks like, it looks like another few weeks. So he'll probably miss the firing game. Anyway, they're 2-0. What happens then? Lille, uh, Lille uh, score. Then they get a penalty. They score that. And then in the sixth time, they go 3-2 up. So it's, and this is at home. You know, it's PSG at home. Then uh, what happens then is that Luis Campos, the director of football, makes his way from the stand uh, down to the pitch side, uh, goes to the touchline and starts screaming at the players. Like this old guy in a suit is now is now screaming at the players while the manager, who everyone is talking about, who's going to get sacked, sits stony-faced behind him, right? Mm. <laughs> anyway, this has the desired effect. Mbappe scores a great goal and then Messi in the 95th minute scores an amazing free kick. He must have heard people going on about James Ward-Prowse and how he was like as good as Messi. So he showed that actually, no, I'm still the best at this. Scored a great free kick off the post. Uh, 4-3. I mean, you can't ask for more than that, can you, Murph? <sighs> yeah, I probably yeah. can. Yeah, I probably can ask for a bit more than that, to be honest. You can. A more solid yeah. backline for a start. Yeah, like <laughs> the idea of like playing as a football team, not as a... I mean, what we saw from PSG last week in the Champions League was farcical. The whole thing yeah, was, was just such a sh- complete and utter, utter shit show. Yeah, they were good. Mbappe is good. But at the end of the day, me spending my life arguing the, the toss over these no, things, just like no, for that alone, please, God, save me. Someone, Big Jim, please save me from that at least. <laughs> your, your beloved Big Ineos Jim. boss, Big Jim. Rackley. What about your greenwashing? You're going to be justifying another greenwashing. I can see those. Chelsea, oh my God. So just, it happened again. Lost to Southampton. I think Grand Potter's in big trouble there. The whole place is in uproar. Um, people booing him. Uh, I'm sure there will be people out there who will think I'm the problem, says Graham Potter. I don't think they're right. I'm not arguing enough to say their opinion isn't worth articulating. My job is to help the team keep working through a tough period. The truth is we took a step back in our performance. I mean, it's just as... Um, I just, it's just not working. I mean, he says in his, 
in his press conference, he also said he, he starts referring to, and I think this is something, this is the point he should leave to others to make if they feel it's worth making. But the point he made was, if you look at some of my colleagues, for example, Pep, you know, I think he had some criticism when he came in at first. Um, Mikel Arteta, he's, he's done such a great job. You know, he he had some criticism. Jurgen Jurgen Klopp up at Liverpool, you know, he had some criticism when he came in at first. And, you know, these guys are fantastic. So, you know, dot, dot, dot. And you're like, that's it's complete nonsense. What he said, that point, I'm sorry, is nonsense. Guardi Guardiola was criticized. I remember Guardiola getting laughed at when... City lost 4-0 to Leicester, wasn't it? I remember uh, when that tiny kid completely bodied him on YouTube. Possession uh, football does not oh, yeah. work in the Premier League. Does not work in the Premier League, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, wasn't, no, but I, don't, I think that kid was talking about Louis van Gaal. That was, yeah, yeah, That kid's about 21 now, man. Yeah, hold the hands up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has but, uh, 8 million followers on YouTube, yeah. and I still don't know the lads' name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well... And no one was 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 saying this guy's not the right man. They were saying, "Oh, Claudio Bravo's no good," or you know, "Oh, they, you know, maybe he shouldn't." Have been How so could you have done that Joe to Hart. Joe Hart? Yeah, yeah, Joe Hart. You know, but there wasn't like, "Oh, this guy's not the right man." They started off brilliantly. I mean, they they won at Old Trafford really early in in the Pep Jose off. You know what I mean? We're very mm. dominant in that. Um, and you know, then they had a rough spell and they finished what third, I think. But like, it was fine, and then. It wasn't anyone. They never got to this point that Graham Potter's at now. It's likewise with Arteta. Arteta has been through some tough moments, but but also beat Chelsea in his first season to win the FA Cup. There were good things to go along with the with the bad things. That's what Potter's missing with Klopp. That no one was was criticizing Klopp. I mean, I I, I see this with Klopp. You sometimes say oh, Klopp took a while to win a trophy, but like, have you seen the, the state of the team that he took over? They, you know, they're atrocious and. Very quickly, he started turning them into a much better team. This none of this has any relevance to Potter's situation, and you know you see him, and, and I'm just like, I, I feel sorry for him because remember that we talked ages ago about this uh, this guy who had done a study on like Everton players in the seventies, like a, a, oh, a sociological yeah, yeah. study or like a or an ergonomic or, or workplace study, like what to analyze Everton Football Club as a workplace, and he said people think these are sportsmen, but actually they're more like actors. Right. And that was players. That was the ones who were who who were on the field, right? If that is true of them, how true is it of managers now that that like what you are above all at this point now is an actor? And when I try to think of the managers who are successful, this is like what stands out about them all. Like, I mean, there are some, you know, you get you get someone like Guardiola who's obviously bringing a lot of of football ideas. Right, you know what I mean. He 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 does definitely. Guardiola, someone you can say he definitely does have a lot of ideas about football on the technical and tactical level. What you should be doing on the pitch, how how you should be lining up, how you want to move the ball around. You know, he he's really into that. Someone like Mourinho, not not really. Right, he's not, he's not actually not too bothered about that. But uh, you know, Mourinho is someone who who I think maybe got caught up too much in the bullshit of the of the acting that he understands the job to be but, but, some, but, some, but somebody you mentioned well. but, but Ten Hag for example is I would say not an actor I don't think at all he's not exactly no, a box office he's, character he's, he's, he's a real belt and braces football man who, who's but just, he's projecting he, he's also good at projecting um, a clear identity of who he is I feel he is he's very he's very serious he's very uncompromising like Potter I think is kind of just too much he's too reasonable 
You know what I mean? He, he's like if he, if if Mourinho was like a kind of a, a charismatic World War One general, whose men are ready to die for his awful tactics, and many of them do. You know, it's the like Thomas Tuchel, the predecessor of Potter. That's a guy who who you know he understood that it was okay to be weird. You know, people actually like it when you when you show. You remember his his ridiculous scene with with Antonio Conte. It was, it was it was ridiculous. Objectively, it was nonsense. It was embarrassing for both men. Mm. The crowd loved it. The people loved it. Right, Graham Sooners loved it. Right, <laughs> that was that was the occasion of men at it. Was that it? Was the, wow. Okay. Yeah, that, that, yeah, it, was, yeah, it was that game. It was that game, and that and that like, Conte back. himself is, yeah. is an absolute volcano. You know, Klopp is like a, is a is a complete showman. You know, Arteta is like more the pep school, but a, a snake-hipped young maestro. Uh, Ferguson, I mean, you know, Ferguson. Like Ferguson's entire career, to to some extent, is like the performance of anger. You know, like the hairdryer being mm-hmm. the big cliche about him, mm-hmm. and and he had he's kind of a man of many faces. Like some days he's like a a kind of a a, a fanatical like a Puritan preacher, like hunting witches in Salem, right? Some, there, were, there were days, and especially in his early career, when he looked like that on the sideline. Then there are kind of, he, he had like a gangster mode. He had like a presidential mode. He had like a bitchy mode, you know? But always, with, with all of these faces, you knew that you just, you would not mess with any of them. You know what I mean? Like he, he always was, was projecting this. Potter doesn't, he sort of isn't really projecting it. He's like passive, he's phlegmatic. You know, he's a reasonable man. He actually reminds me of a friend once said he looks like an Arctic explorer. I mean, in fact, he does have experience in the Arctic with uh, with Ostersons. And uh, except he knows that like his men are about to eat him. You know, I'm about to get eaten by these guys. Uh, like he's, a, he, it's like, uh, you know, uh, Lord Potter of uh, somewhere in the, somewhere in the north. And he's in like King's Landing now. And it's just, it's just, I don't. I wish I could believe that they're gonna, you know, that they're gonna give him time. But I just no, no. We established, we established this a number of weeks ago. I think it's I think it's on borrowed time now. To be mm. honest with you, what about it's, well, you know, again, who are they gonna who are they gonna get? Because it seems like it's difficult for teams to to get managers now. I mean, the Leeds have this problem. Southampton maybe are just gonna appoint Ralph Hasenhuttle's former assistant, who was who was in charge. I mean, he's dressing to impress, right, Ruben Sellers. I this have is, to say, right, I, I tuned out of. Uh, the Southampton news for like 48 hours and then I saw that guy on the sideline I was like oh they've appointed a manager because who's no this, interim manager dresses young like manager. Yeah. no interim uh, if you're an interim uh, coach it's tracksuits only That's and that's a rule that's a ha- absolute hard and fast no exceptions ever is that what rule. Scooby's doing at Leeds Scoobs yeah. that's his nickname is Scoobs 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 is tracksuit bottoms and uh, gilet I think or maybe it's just a padded jacket that has what did you think of um, Unai Emery's gilet oh no it's never a good look but then he's he's a good man for like the gigantic puffer jacket which is even worse so I don't well, the gilet was just it was I didn't. I, I thought, what's what's he I didn't going think for? A, I think they did. The, I didn't think a gilet, a gilet could be loud, but it was loud. Yeah, this it was. It, it was, was kind loud. of bronze yeah, yeah. metallic effect. And but it was, it yeah. was, but as for Celes, like, I mean, I was like, oh well. Uh, well, I don't know who guy, this guy, but this he's obviously come it. in with a big reputation from some, uh, some other league. They've signed him on a four and a half year deal, and the guys he's getting an immediate new manager bounce. This all from the fact that he's wearing a suit <laughs> instead of the tracksuit. The outfit, yeah. yeah. 
Well, um, yeah, I was talking about Leeds still still haven't managed to find anyone. Leeds are playing Everton. Seamus Coleman scored a Roberto Carlos goal, oh. which Ben Davis tried to copy the next day. Did you see him against uh, Tottenham against Leeds? He he tried to do a Seamus Coleman, but he couldn't pull it off. So Coleman, it's another win in the bag for Sean Dyche. They're shooting up the table. Well, they're still pretty close to the bottom of the table, but you know, I mean, things are things are going pretty well. You'd they're out, they're out of the relegation zone, which is good. Yeah, uh, and things are kind of the opposite. It's a, the opposite situation for Leeds, who are like, oh, maybe we actually shouldn't have. Ooh, oh no, maybe Coach Marsh. You know, maybe we should have figured out who we're going to sign before we signed. Well, uh, uh, what's it, the owner called Roger Roger said, tweeted on the, like the Monday night. It might have been the night. Uh, the, the same day that Marsh was gone or the next day he tweeted there'll, there'll be white smoke tonight or if not in the morning and somebody a Leeds fan tweets him then at lunchtime the next day going uh, you know any sign of that white smoke and he's like uh, no you're going to have to bear with us and be patient <laughs> so, along those lines and that was that was two weeks ago and early you know yeah, offering up host- yeah. hostages to yeah. fortune in that matter not, never a good idea and the the one other um, game I just want to mention is obviously the Newcastle game and uh, as you said at the start, there was a lot of chaos happening in this game. A lot of it engulfing Nick Pope. Oh, Murph, um, your favourite goalkeeper. No, hold on a second. Ken, this is Ken's favourite. It's my favourite goalkeeper. I mean, I saw... I you saw love that... all the English goalkeepers. No, no. I, so hang on, you're incorrect. a Pickford man. No, that's also incredible. Oh, you're, you're a Ramsdale. I mean, if, if I had to choose Ramsdale. an English goalkeeper, it would be Nick Pope. But I mean, I don't have any major strong feelings. It is Ken that loves Nick Pope. I mean, I was watching this. I immediately texted Ken. I saw Nick Pope yeah. doing something daft. The first person I thought of was Ken Early. Yeah. Um, well, Coach Howe uh, said it was harsh, but this is... The, these are the rules. I mean, there was a Newcastle account I saw t- tweeting. Sorry, it. Not, not not that the red card was harsh, but just the fact that he now misses the League Cup final because of it. Uh, well, that, no, that, that, that's what people are giving out about mostly. Gary Lineker was on match today saying, "Free him, you know, let him play." Well, even though he's just, uh, it's a refreshingly uh, GEA-ish attitude towards this bit of the Premier yeah. League. It's like, well, of course we have to, you know, in, uh, enforce these rules. But it's on a particularly the other hand, awkward game. Nobody likes the rules, game, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was um, it's a bad result for for Newcastle and, and since the World Cup in the Premier in the Premier League, it's two wins, five draws, and one defeat, which is not Champions League form. By the way, uh, can, I, can, still... can I just say my favorite part about the Pope incident? Right, so he he kind of slips over. It's all gone horribly wrong. He handles the ball hilariously. And then even after that, Trippier comes in to try to give him a dig out. And he just, he just whacks Trippier out of the way, nearly injuring the poor lad. So a real calamity. For like, probably the best goalkeeper in the Premier League so far this season. But he won't, yeah, play, he won't play in the Carabao Cup final. A real disaster. So it's probably Loris Karius in the in the Carabao Cup final because yeah. Martin Dubravka, the the first sub Newcastle goalkeeper, played for Man United in the League Cup earlier this season. So it was cup tied. Um and we'll get a winner's medal if United win, probably if Manchester United It's weird, win. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's a strange one. Um, the the other thing about this was obviously um, Darwin Nunez and just his insane statistics. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to make any sense of this, man. He scored a goal. Do you think it was in, intentional? His goal? I mean, the goal was intentional. He meant to score, but what, what did you think of the control? How would you analyze it? Because well, it... Well, it just... I'd have to ha- I'd have to have the goal in front of me to go through in that granular detail. So you know, I think um, I think he he did all the things that he meant to do, and then he rifled the ball. Uh, yeah, I mean, was it the finish of a of a striker brimming with confidence? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, probably, uh, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it looks like that. It's hard, it's hard yes, to know, right? Yeah. I mean, if it, yeah. you, usually if a, if a striker is there, you know, you got some sort of top striker confronted with a goalkeeper and, and plenty of time, it's pretty easy for them to score, right? Um, Darwin absolutely put his foot through it, which is what Alex Ferguson, of course, famously, as we always mention in this yep. situation, Murphy, put your boot through as it. His, as a tradition, yeah. uh, just fucking hit it, <laughs> and that's what he, that's what he did. Okay, so the, the control... so, so, so the ball is played. The ball bounces in front of him. He kind of hooks it back towards himself. He, he, Do you he, think he, that's he, deliberate? No, what about it's deliberate? Who cares? Like this, Luis Suarez used to score, used to control balls like this the whole time. You, you wouldn't be sure if he had it under control. And the, uh, I remember, I remember Luis Suarez scoring a goal actually against Newcastle, where it was fired at him uh, from possibly inside the Liverpool like, half over like, did he mean, like, like he's taking the ball down did he mean to kick it back into his own chest probably not but he's got a foot on it to kill, and it's killed it somewhat and then yeah. his insane speed is taking him towards the ball so it nudges off his chest like, I think we're over analysing for trying to take any credit away from him for but it's, it just goal. amazes me how how every time every, every even the good things that he does you're still going hmm. well, you are you are <laughs> it's a slight not, I think that's a very good goal I was looking at his stats he's, his stats are, are phenomenal he is the top player out of Two and a half, well, 2,710 players in the European top five leagues who have appeared this season. Uh, and none of them has as many shots per game as Darwin Nunez. He is nearly a shot clear at the top of that with like five points something. Lionel Messi is the second place, second place player on that table, right? Shots shots per game. But is Darwin this, is, is, this is top just, by a mile. Is this just not uh, an acknowledgement that he, the God loves a trier? Like I, I'm struggling to see what exactly this proves, other than that. Well, it's, he's it's, just going to keep it's going phenomenal. back. Yeah, to 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 have more than five shots per game is is in itself extremely rare. So if you look back at the last five seasons, the only players who have been able to who have done that over a season in those top five leagues are Ronaldo, who did it three times. Ronaldo is is obviously the, the biggest shot monster. Certainly, he was before he, you know, while he was still able to move around a bit. Uh, Messi, who's done it twice. Luis Muriel of, of Atalanta, who's also done it twice. Mbappe, who's done it once, and uh, Lorenzo Insigne, who who was playing for Napoli when he when he did it. So what I'm saying is that even just to, being able to do that is a sign that you're is a sign of some kind of exceptional ability. He's also top, or rather, sorry, he's second in of all those players in shots on target per game. Um, the top player in that category is Lewandowski. Right behind him is Darwin Nunez, and then there's Kylian Mbappe. And they're the only ones who are over two shots per game. Um, out of everyone, Holland is like sixth on the list. Um, he takes about half a shot. He gets about half a shot less on target per game than Darwin Nunez. So it's like, what? Then if you look at the the XG, the goals minus expected goals stats, so basically this is comparing how, the goals you've actually scored with the goals you would have been expected to score. Who do you think is top of that category in the Premier League? Who has who, who has outperformed their XG by the greatest margin? The expected goals of this, but uh, I've actually Marcus scored more Rashford. than that. Rashford is fourth. Who's top? Uh, uh, oh, it's obvious. Don't ever say it's Erling Haaland. It's obvious. He scored twenty six goals. He's, Erling it's Erling. It's Erling Haaland is top. Then James Madison, uh, who scores, I guess some. Low XG uh, goals from further out. Then it's Harry Kane. Then Marcus Rashford. Then James Ward-Prowse, who is, is is also a bit like Madison, scores free kicks and this kind of thing, where you've got a very low chance of scoring. So you can climb that table uh, and doesn't shoot that much otherwise. The bottom five, and we'll go, we'll go, um, we'll count down towards the the lowest player. Uh, bottom five is Gabriel Jesus, Darwin Nunez, Eddie Nketiah, 
Patrick Bamford and Danny Welbeck. A very strong Arsenal influence. I was going to get. I would have guessed Nketiah as my number one. He's missed just in the really? last two games alone. He's missed a lot of chances. A lot of headers seem to be hitting crossbars for him and just going yeah, over and not quite it's getting not, there. And, it's not quite going in for him. No, but Darwin is, is down there as well. Like it's it's just sort of like. Uh, I, I guess the conclusion is looking at the stats, you would expect he's going to score a lot of goals at some point soon. Maybe not tomorrow because maybe he's injured. He got he got cleaned out by uh, Trippier. It was one of those hard but fair tackles. He fell over and, and fell flat on his arm. Um, it, which his arm was in front of him and, and tweaked his shoulder. So I don't know how bad that's going to be. Uh, and if he's missing against Madrid, I think they will really miss him. The other thing to note about Liverpool at the moment is that they have won the two games they've played since Thiago got injured. Oh, and I know, I know that you often do are on Premier Sports with uh, with Kenny Cunningham. Yeah. Uh, and some of the stuff I've seen Kenny Cunningham say, you know, when you say stuff like that about a man like Tiago. Oh, yeah, he's uh, not a massive Tiago fan. No, no he's really not. <laughs> he's really not. And I've always been like, Kenny, you know, I, I don't really understand that because to me, when I, I look at him, I think he's I think he's a really brilliant player. And yet I just wonder if he is maybe a brilliant player in a team that just doesn't actually suit him. That especially now when that when a lot of the the kind of machine has stopped working at Liverpool or they're trying to get it get it restarted or rebuilt, if he just doesn't really fit, I actually thought to be fair in the Newcastle game when they went two 0 up and then Newcastle were down to ten men suddenly, that they could have used him in that situation to try and keep control of this like hot potato of this ten man Newcastle team, which they which Liverpool weren't able to do. Newcastle easily could have equalised in that game. You know, there was there there were a lot of chances, um, and they they never really, even though they had man advantage, took the grip of the game and and and, and ended it. And maybe he could have helped in that situation. But I I just think back to that Ruben Neves goal that by Wolves. You know, <laughs> like he just. You can't have that happen. This, this is when Ruben Neves ran past Thiago. He literally has never scored a goal like that in the Premier League. I checked. I checked if Ruben Neves has ever done this. He's never done anything like that before. Um, and there's something there that makes you think, maybe this is a great guy, but sometimes uh, sometimes teams and players just don't fit. And I wonder if this injury that he suffered, which is the only reason he's out of the team because of the players have not been playing very well in that area of the pitch, might turn out to have been one of those kind of... Um, fortuitous moments uh, where they where they chance upon something that works a bit better there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I said, Karen, it's Richard Keyes. Prehistoric banter. Please, it was just banter. Is not acceptable in a modern world. Do you have any regrets? None. There are some dark forces at work here. The eyes have it, the eyes have it. I'm not. 
Well, there's a fair bit to talk about today with Richard Jolly of The Independent. Richard, how are you? Good, thanks. You? Ah, great, thanks. And Jack Pickbrook of The Athletic. Jack, how's the form? Good, thank you. We might start, Richard, with Manchester United and one man in particular, Marcus Rashford, who is just... I mean, phenomenal. I know there was always this thing, thing whether he'd get back and rediscover the old Marcus Rashford and this and all this kind of stuff. This new Marcus Rashford is better than any version of Marcus Rashford I've ever seen before. And I think one man deserves a lot of the credit for that. And uh, that man is, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo. Because <laughs> um, ever since he left Manchester United, Rashford scored 16 goals in 17 games. Um, is, is that a coincidence at all? Or do you think that actually genuinely has, has freed Rashford up? I think it has freed Rashford up. I mean, clearly it's not the only factor. Clearly. Clearly, Eric Ten Hag had a big influence. Um, there's some talk of Benny McCarthy and working with him in, as, in terms of his finishing. There's, there's the confidence he's got back. But Ronaldo did have a disastrous effect in two ways. I think one was just simply his presence there made it very difficult for other people to get the minutes they needed. And secondly, I do think there's been this really liberating effect. Um, at the moment with Rashford, United have got the problem it, in that, as he showed in Barcelona, he is very much their best striker. As he's also shown recently, he's very much their best left winger as well. Um, he might be the best right winger as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is carrying the team, and yet he's making it look easy. And yesterday against Leicester, Leicester started really well. They had nine shots in 21 minutes. And then one chance falls to Rashford, and he's absolutely absolutely clinical, all in the back of the net. And um, it, it, feel, it feels from that moment to the game's, game's over. And 24 goals already this season. His previous best was 22. And assuming he stays fit, he should get closer to Ronaldo's total of 42 from 2007-8 mm. than any United player has done since then. Um, Wayne Rooney twice got into the early 30s. Players like Ibrahimovic, Lukaku, Bruno Fernandes have all got high 20s, but with three months of the season together, uh, to go rather, Rashford, you could be looking certainly get mid-high 30s, maybe even 40. Jack, um, Richard is, is crediting Ronaldo's disappearance uh, in large part here. What about um, what about Gareth Southgate? I mean, I can't help noticing that, that this uh, explosion in Rashford's form seems to coincide with heading off to Qatar, where, of course, he scored three goals for England in the in the World Cup. Did he get bitten by a radioactive spider out there or um, did, did his experiences with England in some way contribute, uh, contribute to this? I'm sure that Southgate's faith in Rashford has probably helped him from a sort of confidence perspective. You know, it was a big... It seems strange looking back now, but it was a big story when Southgate took Rashford to the World Cup because he'd not really been involved in England for a long time beforehand, having, you know, had a pretty disastrous Euros uh, in 2021, not only because of the missed penalty, but clearly he just wasn't fit, like he hadn't been for a while. Southgate took him, and he, you know, when he scored those those two goals uh, in England's third group game, it felt like a bit of a um, a bit of a surprise, really, because we weren't used to seeing this level of Rashford. That said, that all said, every time you see Rashford play as well as he's doing at the moment, which I think has to be the best he's ever played, it does make you think, why didn't Southgate play him against France? Why didn't Southgate even bring him on earlier again in the France game when he could have been he could have been so effective? Was um, it about seventy seven minutes or something when he came was, yeah. was after the goal? Yeah, yeah. You do wonder if he if he might have come on a bit sooner in that game, but clearly, you know that his participation at the World, his inclusion and participation at the World Cup is part of this amazing return 
to to form in which I mean when when I watch him play at the moment I think I kind of forgotten he was that good because he was the, the last few years have been such a strange mix of injuries and then of course he, you know his his profile has been big for for largely non football reasons you've forgotten that this was all built on the fact that he was initially a brilliant brilliant footballer and then you watch him play every week now and you think oh yeah he was he was really that good wasn't he yeah well another issue there or actually not specifically to do with Rashford but another player I mean you mentioned it said. You know, Rashford might be the best left winger, the best right winger. Uh, it still leaves room for other other guys to fit into the team. Uh, where do you think Jaden Sancho stands at the moment? He obviously didn't go to the World Cup, uh, having gone to the previous Euros, and has been absent from uh, from consideration for some time this season. Has been back in recently, and for the first time, looks like he might he might be about to fit in. Where do you think he's at at the moment? I think Ten Hag has clearly done very, very well in terms of the way he's managed Sancho. And some of the personal circumstances haven't been completely explained and maybe shouldn't be for if they are for private reasons. But one of the one of the interesting things tactically is that Ten Hag has kind of recast Sancho as a number 10. Um, now, there are times where I think Sancho is very much suited to the role on the left. Um, United slightly confusingly maybe signed him more to play on the right, which I don't, which doesn't look quite as well suited to. But he came on as a number ten yesterday, and one of the odd things is is that for two or three years it appeared as though Bruno Fernandes was a player who could play at number ten and absolutely nowhere else to a high standard. Ten Hag's got Bruno Fernandes playing off the right. He started with Val Weghorst as a number ten. And he ended with Jaden Sancho as a number 10. Uh, Val Vegas, obviously, is the most unlikely number 10 in Manchester United's history, probably. Um, and has this strange dynamic whereby he never scores any goals, but Rashford scores twice as many, so it doesn't really matter. But it does feel as though every game is a step on the comeback trail for Sancho. Every step is is one in the right direction. I mean, simply the fact he's playing against Barcelona in the new Camp from a situation whereby he was training on his own in Holland a few weeks ago. Um, so I, th- I think there's a lot of encouragement to be drawn from there. But I also think that Ten Hag's kind of trying to do it gradually. So it, it will be interesting to see the, the two games coming up, Barcelona and the Carabao Cup final, whether Sancho starts either. Certainly, he is in their strongest team, particularly at the moment when Martial and um, Anthony um, are not fit. Um but yeah, I, th- I think I think that one is um is a, is another really encouraging thing because if you go back to autumn, Sancho to a certain extent was in the same position as Rashford as far as England was concerned, um, and since then Rashford's completely taken off. But maybe there's hope that Sancho could move in the in a, have a similar kind of trajectory. Another issue to do with the team, which today yesterday's game highlighted, is um, the the situation of David Gea. David Gea kept him in this game. Like, United started the game very badly. Leicester had a couple of great chances. And the reason Rashford's goal was the opening goal was that De Gea had bailed out United with a couple of great saves. Now, I wonder what you think about his his long-term situation. I mean, I, I remember at the beginning of the season talking about, remember, the, obviously there was two terrible uh, results to start the campaign and De Gea was awful in these games and particularly you know his his game with the ball at his feet his his flaws there were showing up horribly uh, and I remember saying at the time well this isn't going to work you know this guy you know he, he's a good shot stopper but this isn't the kind of goalkeeper you need when you're top team 
I mean, he, he obviously has, has put in some great performances for them. And they're doing pretty well. So my question is, do you feel that De Gea um, is good enough to be... I mean, I, we, we, can, we can all see that, that he's, he's brilliant in some areas of the game. But do you think overall um, Ten Hag will say, OK, David De Gea is my goalkeeper. That position at least is taken care of for the next couple of years as I build this team. Or are there still going to be reservations about whether he's the right fit? I think Ten Hag is this interesting combination of Dutch purism and Dutch pragmatism. And so he doesn't go in for the... Um, if you think when Pep Guardiola came into Manchester City, he had to have a passing goalkeeper. So he has Claudio Bravo, who couldn't save any shots. Mm. Uh, I don't see Ten Hag doing that. I think Ten Hag will take the pragmatic view that De Gea at the moment is a very good shot stopper. He praises him a lot. Um, he know obviously he knows he's not great on the ball. He's not an Allison. He's not an Edison. Um, but the noise is also from De Gea are very much that he is happy at United and wants to stay. He's currently on this absolutely ludicrous contract, which expires in the summer. I think De Gea would happily take a pay cut and a sizable pay cut to stay at United, partly because he's not likely to get that kind of salary from anyone anywhere else. But I also think Ten Hag would take the pragmatic view of saying that he's got a very good goalkeeper who saves a lot of shots and who wants to stay at Manchester United. And he can he can just accept that situation and use his transfer budget elsewhere. So I, I think that one, yeah, I, th- I think Ten Hag would stick with De Gea. The big news, Richard, over the weekend, obviously with United, is what's going on off the field and these bids coming in. We've got an email here from Peter Fagan on the Qatari bid. He says, the only way I see this, see this being stopped is if fan mobilisation a la the Super League happens that maybe pressures the club not to do the sale. But where there was universal support around the Super League, I don't see that with this sale. Looking online, you'll see a lot of fans thinking it's the only way to compete, to compete. And if they sign Mbappe, all will be forgiven. Um, now, there is, just to counter that, there are, you know, there are these stories coming in from uh, or these stances being taken by the Rainbow Devils for example Manchester United's LGBTQ plus supporters group they've raised a deep concern over this possible takeover the Man United Supporters Trust have also voiced their concerns is there any any sense that these sort of concerns are going to be shared by enough people passionately enough that there could be genuine objections that, that could actually derail this Qatari bid in any way? I don't think so at the moment. I mean, I saw the Manchester United Supporters Trust uh, Trust statement, which also, by the way, um, referred to kind of multi-club ownership, which could be taken in terms of Sir Sir Jim Radcliffe and Ineos and Nice. Um, So it was as though they weren't trying to deliberately back or oppose any one bid. Yeah, Um, what they said, said, this is separate to the the guitar. They said there are questions about sporting integrity, given the exceptionally close link between some bidders and the owners of other European clubs, including PSG and Nice. So, yeah, that's that's tying in Radcliffe as well on, on that particular score. Yeah, and ultimately the decision will come down to the Glazers with the... Uh, and also to Rain Group to a certain extent. Um, The Glazers, as we all know, are very interested in money. Uh, And the Qatari bid, you would imagine, has the possibility to be the biggest bid in in that respect. Certainly for supporters who just want, as you say, Mbappe or big names or success, the promise of a debt-free club with a large amount to spend would probably lead them towards Qatar. Um, at the moment, I don't think there is a, a big enough and loud enough and powerful enough coalition 
against the potential Qatari ownership to halt things, even though, as you say, United fans have shown in the past they can be quite militant about some things, and when they are, sometimes they can be quite effective. So my guess at the moment is that the Qatari bid is the most likely to succeed. How do you see this playing out, Jack? I... I don't think we've seen anything from the Glazers since they bought Manchester United to suggest that they would be particularly guided by um, fan fans who didn't want Qatar to buy the club. Um, I'm sure Richard is right when he says that you know they will be motivated primarily by who they can get their asking price out of, and if it if their view is that Qat- the Qatari bid gives them the best chance of getting their asking price, then. I would be really surprised if the opposition of some fan groups, um, as you know, as genuine and uh, admirable as there is, uh, would get in the way of them getting what they want. Could the Premier League be swayed in any way, or is it too late for all that? They don't have they they have whatever rules they have in place, and you know, either this bid will be allowed to go through or not. And, uh, you know, is, is there any sense that if there was a Super League level of disgust among supporters that it could pressure the Premier League to do something? I can't see the Premier League regulating against it. I think the Premier League doesn't, clearly doesn't like to regulate in these cases. That said, the Premier League has shown far more appetite for regulation in the last few weeks than it has done in you know the entirety of its existence. So we can't completely rule out a um, that they might that they might decide to take a stand on this, but it strikes me that, you know, everything, almost literally everything that's happened in football over the last 20 years Mm. has been building up to the red carpet being rolled out for exactly this, Mm. you know, not just the, uh, you know, from Abramovich to Abu Dhabi to the Qatar World Cup and all the rest of it. Um, It seems to me as if all of, you know, all all of everything, all of these developments uh, this millennium have been geared towards something like this happening and nobody, and there being kind of no real possibility or appetite for serious uh, legal regulatory pushback against it. Yeah, I I mean, and, you know, I I was suggesting or talking about the possibility of, you know, Super League type protests. I mean, that clearly isn't going to happen. You know, based on everything I can see, you know, from the kind of MUSTs, you know, equivocating statements to, you know, everything you sort of see on the internet, a lot of United fans will be absolutely delighted with this. And, and, you know, there is that view, uh, seems to be quite widespread that, oh, well, this is, you know, this is the only way, this is the way the game's gone and this is the only way to compete. Are you surprised that this is the only way Manchester United can compete, seems to be believed by a lot of people, given that Manchester United clearly, I mean, to me, of all clubs in, in certainly in England, um, they're the ones that least need a rich owner to come and support them. I mean, they've got the, they've got the money to do whatever it is they, they want to do. I mean, what they've lacked over the last years isn't actually money. And I know that the Glazers, that they would have had more money to play with or, or more margin for waste, let's say, if the Glazers' uh, ownership wasn't structured the way it was and if they weren't trading money and so on. But they've still had plenty of money. The thing that they've lacked is, is the thing that Eric Ten Hag seems to have brought uh, since there, which is to say competence. And with competence, they could easily compete without Qatar or, or Saudi Arabia or whoever. And, and it seems to me... Um, a lot of people don't agree with that. Uh, I'm sure. I mean, I think you're right, Ken, uh, that Manchester United, because of their commercial revenues, 
don't need to be owned by Qatar to compete, and that ultimately the gap between um, the gap between uh, Manchester United and Manchester, say Manchester City, is more sort of um, strategic or like intelligence based than it is financial. But I mean, I, I can totally understand why lots of lots of fans don't see it that way. You know, they see you know the bi- billions and billions that Abu Dhabi have thrown at Manchester City since two thousand eight. Have, have, they seen well, the job, um, have they seen the job Qatar have done with PSG? An absolute shambles. Like, I mean, uh, really. PSG have Mbappe, though, at the same time, you know? They have Mbappe and still can't win the Champions Mbappe. League. Do you know what I mean? And still consistently get knocked out of that competition in embarrassing circumstances, consistently sack managers because the egos yeah. of players are too big. But you know, I think, you, you, I think you mentioned Ten Hag, the stability. I can't remember the term you brought, that a competence that Ten Hag yeah. has brought. Everything Ten Hag is working towards will be destroyed if they just start coming in and, and, and turning it into this project that prizes massive big-name players above all else. I mean, it's, well, you maybe, literally maybe just got rid of Ronaldo. <laughs> there, there I mean? is, no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the Ronaldo thing was was like... So, so my, point isn't, just whether, wait, wait, my, my point isn't just whether or not Man United fans will think it's like, you know, uh, my, my point is there's no guarantee that it's going to be more successful on the pitch with more money in this case, I don't think, given given the track record in, in PSG. Yeah. Although I think that that does also beg the question, maybe Richard, you can give us your opinion here on, on what I'm saying, but also the question of PSG has, has obviously been a, a failure you know, in the sense that I'm saying, like they've obviously won the French League most of the years that they've been there, but they haven't managed to, to um, win the Champions League. They did manage to get to the final the, the COVID year under um, Thomas Tuchel. But is that, I always kind of feel with PSG, that some of it has to do with the, with the fact that, the, okay, some of the superstars are just too big. Like the coach can't do anything. It's like, a, I think Jorge Valdano was writing the other, the other day, the price of being the PSG coach is that you're not a coach. You're basically a guy who just has to sort of manage egos and give press conferences, but you don't actually get to decide, you know, to, to impose any identity on the team. But to me, the, the major problem PSG have always had isn't necessarily that you know Qatar are running the club very badly, or it's to do with the fact that they're just they're like a beached whale, you know they're they're like a, a beached whale in in the kind of on the beach of the French league. It's like well, what are you supposed to do here? You know, you can Whereas Manchester United are involved in a serious um, you know domestic competition. I don't know if you know I, I, PSG always have this thing where. The, the Champions League knockout game is like the biggest thing of the year and all the whole year is leading up to it. And they can't really hone that sort of competitive edge maybe that you need. And Manchester United don't really have that problem. I mean, they're in the Premier League and having a big, you know, Qatar-funded squad might help there. I've gone on a long time, Rich. What do you make of all this? Well, PSG are a clueless star vehicle. And there are times in recent years where Manchester United have been a clueless star vehicle as well. You know, they signed Radamel Falcao because... He was very famous and very good looking and would look great on all these social media things. And he was terrible. They signed Cristiano Ronaldo because he was there and he was a big name and he was incredibly famous and he wanted to join them and they'd win loads of things automatically by having Ronaldo. And obviously they didn't. And Ten Hag has brought a much needed change of ethos. He's brought standards, he's brought discipline, he's brought rules, he's brought principles and he's brought Val Verkost. Um mm. And so, yeah, what Manchester United need, basically, is more Eric Ten Hag and no PSG. In terms of the financial element of things that you were referring to earlier, United do naturally generate more money than any other club. The basic rule over recent years has been that they have been able to produce an annual transfer budget of around £150 million, particularly for years 
when they are in the Champions League, which is obviously huge. Um, they slightly overspent last summer, which is one of the reasons why they spent January shopping um, for loans and free transfers and things like that. Whereas the, the, the game-changing element, almost in one respect, was Chelsea being going out and spending silly sums, which wasn't due to you know Qatari or Saudi or UAE ownership. And so you can see that maybe United fans are seeing Chelsea spending and thinking we've got to as well. But Manchester United shouldn't have to. They, they, can, they can make so much money um, as it is. And they have a manager who can introduce principles. And the thing with Ten Hag is that he is demanding and he is relentless. And every time they win a game, he finds something that he isn't happy with. And every time he has some injuries, he still says, yes, but we've got to win the next game. And maybe there's a difference there from the French league in that you can win the next game when you're at 50, 60, 70% and Manchester United can't. But yeah, I I would hope that Manchester United, and I think some United fans as well would hope that Manchester United could stand on their own two feet and that the really damaging element to United has just been what the Glazers have taken in debt repayments um, and dividends and that £1 billion that could have gone on rebuilding Old Trafford and improving Carrington and things like that over the last 17 years. Yeah. Can I, can I just add on this that I think yes. that it's not it's not automatic that a Qatari-run Manchester United would operate in precisely the same way as a Qatari-run PSG. Like, with, with, with PSG, clearly there was a big goal there which was to build the brand and you build the and they built the brand by signing famous players rather we're, than we're by selling tra- luxury i think is something yeah right rather than by trying to prioritize winning rather than by trying to prioritize winning the champions league and it might be that you know given that manchester united is already a huge global brand doesn't need to be built up from scratch they don't necessarily need to sign you know whoever the, the next equivalents of neymar messi and mbappe might be that it's po- it's possible i really don't want to sound like i'm doing the qatari's pr work for mm-hmm. them here but it's, yeah. it's possible that they might do it in a different way like, you know as morally objectionable as the qatari ownership of manchester united would be it's not definite that they would just stock it full of stars. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it'd be great news for Eric Ten Hag, to be honest with you. But Ken, um, well, we have, we have Chelsea have been Chelsea have been mentioned there. Yeah, yeah I mean the, the the current example of a team that's got six hundred million plus pounds of new talent in the squad and hasn't scored in nine of their last fourteen matches, which is just like. It's just unbelievable. It's incredible. It's as though they were, if they were trying to do this, you know, you'd think they accidentally would score a little bit um, more than they, than they've been doing. This is, uh, you know, it's it's amazing. And I wonder, Jack, if you feel Graham Potter has said, "I don't think I'm the problem." It, with typical, <laughs> in his typical Graham Potter side, he didn't say, "I'm not the problem." He said, another another angry the broadside from angry Graham. Again. There are some people out there who are criticizing me. I'm not going to say they're all completely wrong. I mean, these are these are things <laughs> Graham Potter literally said uh, after the game. Um, what do you think? Is I mean, is is Graham Potter going to last the week? Uh, I think he will because I think the owners do really want to back him. I think he he does at the moment. It feels a little bit to me. Like I, I think Potter's excellent. I think he's a, he did a, he's he's a fantastic coach. He's done really well in his previous jobs, and everyone who knows him says that he's a really really great guy. But I feel at the moment it feels it feels a tiny bit like Moyes at Manchester United or even Roy Hodgson it's, at Liverpool. It's, it's absolutely like Moyes in the, in the sense that this guy was a was a top a hugely respected 
manager uh, and, and he's absolutely melting down. Yeah, and he's got the, the thing that reminds me of Moyes is the visible aging, like the haggard appearance yeah. of, of Graham Potter compared to this slick guy or, you know, who walked in into this job six months ago. Uh, ma- managing a club like this, you know, because of the f- firstly because of the fans, secondly because of the owners, thirdly because of the players, and especially you know when they, when they bought two what two hundred million pound players in the last in the last window, you need you know you need a sense of charisma, you need a sense of performance, and there is absolutely zero sense of performance at all from Potter, yeah. and I don't and I can sure. I don't see how. I mean, clearly he's not won over the fans. I think he's lost a lot of the fans already. I think I don't, it doesn't look to me like he's won over the players at all. And I'm sure that eventually the board will take their cues from those two sets of people. Um, and it just feels like he's he is in no way the right man to you know to to try and be the kind of big charismatic performative figurehead for a project like this. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, but I also wonder if there's an extra. Um, uh, question there, which is to do with, uh, I mean, you mentioned Moyes and Hodgson, uh, and the thing about these, that the thing that they all have in common is that they're obviously um, the top British coaches uh, who were, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the the British coaches complain we're not considered for the top jobs anymore. They did get the top jobs, and then they 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 had this um, sort of meltdown situation where the whole place was in uproar against them, and they seem really. To, they seem to sort of to, to crumble. I mean, it, maybe Potter can still turn this around. He's still in the job, and and you know maybe it's it's going to go that way. He certainly got a lot of talent there. Maybe someone's going to score a goal from. But I wonder, Rich, if you think that are British coaches more vulnerable to what Graham Potter calls the noise? Um, you know, is there something going on there where these jobs are actually more difficult for these guys? Not because you know they're not as as good, but the, but because they 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 seem to be more affected by all of the the kind of whirlwind that's going on around these clubs. Or is this just a load of nonsense? Well, I guess you've got a parallel in terms of two recent uh, examples of British coaches who've done well at a lesser level, being promoted. To, to a bigger club and struggling. And the other one, unfortunately for Graham Potter, is poor old Nathan Jones, um, who has fewer Premier League wins as a manager this season than Christian Stellini, who has not been a Premier League manager this season. Um, but, I mean, I don't think Potter's essential problem is the noise. I think the essential problem is that his Chelsea are terrible. They're not good at anything. Um <laughs> And well, that's just, that's, I mean, that's <laughs> how, why is that? Like, I mean, they, they they surely. I mean, no one can see how the pieces fit together, but there's a lot of pieces, and surely a top coach should be able to figure something better than you know getting nil and nine of your last fourteen matches. Well, exactly, and and it's four goals in the last ten games. And if someone said to you, for instance, that Bournemouth or Southampton has scored four goals in the last ten games, you think that's pretty poor. And then Chelsea have done it, um, and. Sometimes it does feel like there's this air of delusion around the club as though they're saying, well, it's all right because we've got all these really good young players and we'll be good in three or four years' time. Well, maybe, but you always want some evidence, some reason to believe. Um, I covered quite a lot of Jurgen Klopp's early days at Liverpool. and I mean, he came in in October. They finished eighth that season, but... Along the way, there were games and there were things that made you believe that there was something happening there and that if you stick with this manager, 
you've got a lot of reasons to. I mean, there was the win at Stamford Bridge about a month into his tenure, the win at the Etihad about two months in, some times when the Gagan pressing was working brilliantly, some players who you could see were improving dramatically under this coaching. Well, Chelsea, there's no real pattern of play there. There's nothing they're good at. They don't score goals. There's very few players that have played even reasonably well under Potter, and there's a lot who've played considerably better under plenty of previous managers. You don't know what Potter's best formation is. You don't know what Potter's best team is. Todd Bowley and the owners, it does appear as though they want to back him, but he is alienating some of the fans, and he's alienating them more and more by the week. And, I mean, I was at the Dortmund game last week, and in a way, Chelsea played quite well, and great goal line clearance by Emre Chan and a couple of good saves by the Dortmund keeper. But they lost 1-0 to a selling club. And the air of positivity around it, some of the rhetoric around it, I found quite jarring. And maybe that's because we're all so used to Chelsea with its short-termism and its hire-and-fire culture. But they're having one of the worst seasons anyone's ever had when you consider the amount they've spent and how little they've got in return. They haven't won a domestic cup tie at all. They're 10th in the league. They've got four goals in the last 10 games. They're averaging one goal a game in the league. They haven't beaten the top half team in the Premier League. And it would be an astonishing turnaround if for Graham Potter to be even reasonably successful. Um, Yeah, I mean, it, it does. I mean, obviously a lot hangs on the second leg against Dortmund, but as it stands, this is an atrocious season. Just uh, one other thing, I was I was interested in getting your views on. Um, obviously, there there was a controversial moment in that Chelsea game where Aspilicueta had his head nearly kicked off his shoulders, um, a head which was about six and a half feet above the ground at the time, as he was jumping into the air and managed to, to take a boot full in the face. Now, okay, maybe it wasn't intentional, but it was quite dangerous. Um, I think the outcome was a yellow card for the Southampton player um, at. Manchester United, there was that Sabitzer incident where there was the, uh, you know, Graham, Graham Sooners was like, he's got, he's tried to do him there. Uh, it looked bad. I mean, people were arguing, well, there's not that much force, but you've obviously seen red cards for this again. In that, in that uh, I don't even think that one was called as a foul. It certainly wasn't a yellow card. Um, the question here has to do with what happened last week. Mikel Arteta, it was a great weekend for Mikel Arteta. Uh, this amazing comeback win for Arsenal, but also he got Lee Mason sacked. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. He didn't actually sign the P45 for Lee Mason. The, P, the PGMOL and Lee Mason mutually agreed that Lee Mason wasn't going to be part of the organization anymore going forward. And his last act pretty much as a referee was to fail to draw the line for uh, the offside Brentford goal against Arsenal. Um, I think he'd also been involved in the, the uh, Manchester United-Arsenal game earlier this season where uh, an early Martinelli goal was, was cancelled. Uh, as a, you know, anyway, Lee Mason's gone, and my question is, do you think this is a positive step? Because I can't remember um, previously like a referee effectively being fired for a mistake. Now, again, it's mutual agreement, but we can see it's 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 one of these situations. They had lots of criticism. Lee Mason has has walked the plank. Um, how do you think that affects the dynamics here when the referees know um, that any? any catastrophic loss of face or if, if the responsibility for a mistake is pinned on them in some way, they could be losing their jobs. Is is this a, a good situation that we're in there, Jack? No, I don't think so. I think it's referees 
if it is what it looks like, which is a referee having to having to leave because the criticism was so strong following a, I think what you might call a kind of normal error, like a sort of human, sort of you know, a, silly, a human error. That's pretty bad. I just wonder what dynamic, what effect this will have on a the willingness of play, the willingness of referees to make difficult decisions on the pitch. By which I mean things like disallowing goals or sending players off, particularly from big and well-supported teams. And secondly, what impact will it have on VAR? Will it make VAR will it make VARs more keen to overrule referees or to send referees to the to the monitor because they want to cover their own back? Or will they feel more protective of the referees and therefore less willing to intervene because they think if we don't intervene then maybe we will you know we can all stick together i, I, I don't know how the sort of bonds of solidarity work between on-pitch referees and vars what do you make richie is it more of a is it going to be um the war of all and soul or you scratch my back i scratch yours in the referee land well my immediate thought was that it, it's an instant rebuttal to the argument you often get trotted out by both managers and idiots on social media that there's no accountability for referees. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, Lee Mason um, has his own form of accountability and is, in effect, the Nathan Jones of VARs and, um, and he's gone. But no, I mean, I don't think, I don't think it's a healthy development. Um, obviously, there has to be some form of uh, scrutiny from Howard Webb and people like that to work out which referees and which VARs are better than others, who should be promoted, who should be demoted. But for years we've had the situation and the slightly ludicrous situation where on the, I think it's Monday or Tuesday where the, the refereeing appointments are announced and I'm old enough to remember a day when this wasn't some kind of thing where you're where people are saying so-and-so's demoted because he missed this offside mm-hmm. last week at Leicester and someone and others someone else is sent down to the championship because they didn't give a penalty at Tottenham and yeah I, I find the whole thing quite unsettling I, I don't I, I, d- I despise the culture of blaming referees and blaming VARs um, I generally take the view that of the 380 Premier League games a season, about 360 of them are refereed by David Coote, and I don't really know which ones. Sorry, um, I think it wasn't either one who, who didn't see Sabitzer. I think that was that was what he was doing this weekend, right? I think it was Stuart Atwell, but David Coote oh, might well right. have not seen Sabitzer either. Um, I mean, <laughs> he was probably refereeing four other games at the same time. Um, so, so, yeah, and... The overreaction to the to the Arsenal Brentford thing, the number of people you got if this costs Arsenal the title. Well, there's thirty-eight games. There's so many things that happen in those thirty-eight games. There's still about twenty minutes after that decision when it was one all and Arsenal could have done a lot more to beat Brentford. If Arsenal win the title, it could be because Jorginho's shot hit the post, hit the back of Emmy Martinez's head and went in. Yeah. And that has absolutely nothing to do with Lee Mason. Well, that's good. It was it was actually David Coote, I should say, is the one who didn't see Aspilicueta getting his head kicked off. But uh, look, uh, fair enough. That's that's it for the for the weekend, I guess. All right, listen, great stuff, Richard. Thank you so much, Jack. Brilliant. Thanks, Emil. I got a bone to pick. I do like Ken Early's work. I do like Ken Early's work. I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with anything Ken Early says about football. I'm mad, but I ain't stressed. He writes fluently and thinks uh, cogently. You mentioned Ken Early. What, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with London. Ken Early says about football. He just thinks I'm an annoying twat.
feel we glossed over Seamus Coleman's wonder strike a little bit there because it was amazing for somebody who doesn't score many goals. It scored one goal what in a the moment. three it and a half seasons. Thank absolutely you for absolutely brilliant. It was one of those ones because the way it happened originally, did everyone had the same thought. Was was that deliberate? But then the more you looked at it, the less of a debate there was because mm. if, if that was a mishit cross, first of all, Seamus Coleman... I'm worried about his vision on the field because mm. there's nobody within an arse's roar of the box to even aim a ball into. And secondly, it was just so woefully mishit that for somebody of, of a good technical level like Seamus Coleman, I'd just be disappointed in the lad if that was the case. I thought it was actually a bit like, I'm not a massive gamer by any means, Ken, but I did spend, mm. a, spend a lot of time playing FIFA 95 on the Sega Mega Drive. Mm, wow. And there used to be one particular goal you could score where you just got up as far as you could up the right-hand touchline, like pretty much mm. up to the corner flag, and then you hit a curling shot that invariably went in and pissed right. off a player who didn't know about this little cheat you could do. Yeah, so Coleman, something similar, just just a very strange angle. Melier, for some absolutely bizarre reason, is off his line, well off his line. Uh, maybe it's not that bizarre. He just didn't expect Seamus Coleman to whip in a shot, which he did. Goal deliberate. Yeah, yeah. no debate. Oh, definitely. Yeah, oh, well, you yeah. can see him look around. He, he yeah, did yeah. look around. I mean, I was looking for that on the replay, and then Coleman actually referred to it himself after. Yeah. So he said something. He basically said something. I think the video evidence will vindicate me. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. did take a look, and you and you could you, you saw him do that. He's basically checking: is there anyone there? And the look tells him there's no Everton player, but I can see Melia standing out near the penalty spot. So, what does that mean? Um, it's goal time. So it was a, it was a mistake. It was a mistake. Thank you, Murph. By, thank you, Ken. Uh, thank by, you, all. Thank you, Ken. Really good. Oh, well, thank you good Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again. Well, we will talk to you again tomorrow if you sign up to the World Service on secondcaptains.com for just a five or, five or a month plus VAT. All episodes in that case would come into your ears ad free. And of course, the Second Captains podcast. Yeah, it, that'll be part of the. Yeah, uh, okay, no, I'll, I'll hold you there. Sorry. Oh, if I could just hold you there. If I could just hold you there. Okay. It's the hey. ACAST Creator Network. That's what we're proud of. What he said, ACAST Creator Network. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sports is important. 